I don't believe in an afterlife and I do believe in ghosts. And that was the contradiction Mm -hmm. that was, you know, that is not logical. And I felt like Helen could have those feelings, but that they would be almost heightened because she's a scientist. Do you like books? I'm outlining a new writing project. Who wrote this book? Read it. Read it. Sometimes I'd write something. What are you writing? Have you written anything lately? I'm Amanda Stern and this is Bookable. On today's show, we explore the mysteries of the universe. We're about to begin a journey through the cosmos. We'll encounter galaxies and suns and planets, life and consciousness. But it's also a story about us. What exactly is a gravitational wave? Can ghosts use radiation to talk to us? And what does quantum entanglement have to do with friendship? Well, our guest today dives right into it. Time for an introduction. Okay, awesome. I'm Nell Freudenberger, and my novel is called Lost and Wanted. Nell Freudenberger, author of Lost and Wanted. It's a book about physics and grief, but it's actually funny and fun to read. She's not lying. It's the story of a theoretical physicist named Helen Clapp. And her best friend, Charlie, who uh, dies in the first scene of the book. And it's about Helen and Charlie's relationship in retrospect. And also about the way a scientist might do the kind of magical thinking that we all do when we lose someone. In Lost and Wanted, that magical thinking expresses itself when Helen receives a phone call from Charlie, which should be impossible. The book begins, quote, In the first few months after Charlie died, I began hearing from her much more frequently. This was even more surprising than it might have been, since Charlie wasn't a good correspondent even when she was alive. Therein lies the rub. Helen is a scientist, and she's dedicated her life to rational pursuits. But now, she feels haunted. While Nell Freudenberger was writing Lost and Wanted, she came across another author who expressed that sentiment perfectly. He has an amazing quote that I actually would love to read a little bit of. If yes, that's okay, do it. I have to find my phone. Find it. Yeah, so in this book, Hamlet and Purgatory, Stephen Greenblatt writes that anyone who has experienced the death of a close friend or relative knows the feeling, not only the pain of sudden irrevocable loss, but also the strange irrational expectation of recovery. The telephone rings and you're suddenly certain that your dead friend is on the other end of the line. The elevator door opens and you expect your dead father to step out into the hallway, brushing the snow from the shoulders of his coat. And I read that after I'd started writing this and, you know, had this idea about text messages coming from the dead. And in fact, you know, now when someone dies, they do leave this um, digital detritus in a way mm-hmm. that suddenly becomes incredibly precious, you know, and you want to print out all the messages, um, save all of that. But it also, it's also so strange. I mean, anybody knows this who has lost somebody after, you know, 2001. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's somehow harder to believe that um, somebody whose name is still in your contacts and you, who you still have a long chain of messages with is not there, right. then it, you know, somehow telephone calls are, are different. Or, or it may be that they're not different. It's just that to us now they seem different. From Lost and Wanted, 
page 111. A few days after our conversation in the car, Jack asked me to tell him about the scientists who had tried to invent a machine to talk to ghosts. I explain that an American physicist named Nick Herbert, along with a group of friends, hoped to be able to reach the spirits of the dead. In particular, Harry Houdini. The idea was that the scientists might induce the dead to enter the machine and spell out messages to the living. They called it the Metaphase Typewriter. Oh, the Metaphase. I love the Metaphase Typewriter. I could talk about it forever. All right. Well, we want to talk. I want to talk about it. So can you explain what the Metaphase Typewriter is? So the Metaphase Typewriter is from a book called How the Hippies Saved Physics. And the thesis of this book that is after World War II, a lot of money poured into nuclear and solid state physics. And there was a sort of a different model for teaching physics in the United States, which was, you know, big lecture classes Mm -hmm. and a lot of math, less sitting Mm -hmm. around in coffee shops in Germany, um, playing the (laughs) violin and talking about abstract concepts in theory and more of this calculation. And obviously the the object of some of this was weapons and the military. Mm -hmm. And David Kaiser has this um, theory that these hippies in Berkeley, these physicists who were working at the Lawrence Lab at Berkeley, started this uh, weekly group where they were going to talk about some of the kind of wackier concepts in theoretical physics and that they helped keep um, quantum entanglement on the map. Um, Awesome, because I like that one. Yeah, I I like quantum entanglement too. And one of the weirder things that they did that is easy to read about online was build this metaphase typewriter, which used a sample of thallium, a radioactive element. The fact that um, as any radioactive element decays, it releases particles and but you can't predict when those release events are going to happen they're irregular uh-huh. um, and so if they happened close to the statistical average for that element the typewriter would type a very common letter like e or s uh-huh. and if it was a very long time very or a very very short time something that departed from the average then a weirder letter like v or X would, uh-huh. would be printed. And then in that way, the typewriter spelled out random strings of letters that they thought might be able to be influenced by the spirits of the dead, by ghosts. Amazing. And so this is an example of people who are absolutely bona fide real scientists, if, you know, hippies. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, they were influenced by this guy named Herbert Walker, who thought that our, the mind was a quantum mechanical system. And so they believed that if that was the case, a ghost, especially a ghost who had known them and been involved with their project, they had a someone oh, wow. in their group who had recently died, could <laughs> enter into the machine and spell out messages to his living colleagues. So they were, you know, having a great time building this thing really and funny. probably, you know, like doing all sorts of other activities and <laughs> um, waiting to hear from their dead colleagues. And of course, this didn't work out. And, and Helen in the book sort of wonders why, if that were possible, the ghosts wouldn't just come in and inhabit like the hands of somebody at a typewriter. Like, why did we need, right. you know, the radioactive thallium sample? But the kids in my book decide that they're, Jack hears about the metaphase typewriter from his mom, and uh, they decide that they're going to construct a metaphase typewriter to, you know, contact the ghost of Simi's mother. To me, it was really, I love the way that you were exploring friendship 
through the lens of physics. Well, I feel like that actually for me was was interesting because I set out at the beginning and I really didn't want to use all of these incredibly rich um, metaphors from physics mm-hmm. for um, as a architecture for the story. I was sort of resisting that. I didn't want to talk about gravity as attraction between people. And I didn't want to talk about uncertainty as like the wacky ways that our life can be shaped by chance and circumstance, you know, Mm -hmm. because those are not anything like what those concepts mean in physics. The Heisenberg uncertainty principle is not about how, you know, you miss the train and all of a sudden you, you know, your relationship ends or whatever. Right. um, I think it worked. I was thinking about friendship in ways that I actually haven't before. I haven't thought about friendship in any sort of scientific way that it's, you know, a force, an influence, entanglement. Uh-huh. You know, there entanglement just- is so um, rich in terms of friendship, and I was kind of resisting it at the beginning, and I felt like I had no, to earn it in a way, like by, like, the, the, the idea of quantum entanglement had to really be in the book before we could use it to talk about the way that people who have been connected at one time might be kind of affected later on. You know, with quantum entanglement, there's this idea that the pair of particles that have been in contact with each other later on in their life, if one of them is observed or measured, you know, then the other one is affected as well. No matter where they are. No matter where they are. Yeah, that's really cool. For a short break. When we come back, we'll meet an inspiring female scientist, and Nell shares some heartbreaking criticism. Stick around. Welcome back to Bookable. I'm Amanda Stern, here with Nell Freudenberger, author of Lost and Wanted. From page 58. The Higgs is important because it creates a field, producing profound effects on the particles around it while remaining invisible itself. For that reason, it has sometimes been called the God particle, a designation most physicists dislike. I've always thought that if a name makes people interested enough to learn more, it's probably doing more good than harm. Well, I think Helen does physics in the same way that a writer writes in order to understand the world around her, especially the parts that she can't see. And she also is a competitive person who enjoys her research, but she also enjoys kind of being in this um, intense environment full of other scientists who are trying to publish papers and write books. And it does matter in science who gets there first, you know, who answers a question first and write. And there is this scientist who I have got sort of obsessed with during the writing who didn't, um, there's just a tiny thing about her in the book, and maybe it's extraneous, but I was just so interested in her. Her name is Qian Xiang Wu. And she came to the United States from China in the 30s, on her own, um, and she was going to go to the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. And she heard that women were not allowed to use the front entrance there. They went in a separate entrance on the side and Mm -hmm. decided that that school was not for her. And so she had landed in uh, San Francisco, which came Mm -hmm. by ship. And and she uh, had a tour of the Lawrence Berkeley lab from the man who eventually became her husband, who was also Chinese. 
And I love this story. It's an amazing story. And she ended up, you know, against all odds, right, mm -hmm. as a female physicist at that time, um, being recruited to work on the Manhattan Project because wow. of her work uh, in radioactivity. She, they realized they had a problem at the B reactor in Hanford, which is where the LIGO detectors are now, but uh -huh. then, you know, was a nuclear site. And I think it was Emilio Segre who realized that she was the one who had written the kind of definitive paper on this as part of her PhD thesis, and they recruited her. So to be, you know, a foreigner working and a woman working on the mm -hmm. Manhattan Project at that time was just, you know, un completely unheard of. Yeah. And she um, went on to teach at Columbia and to perform this very famous experiment of, called non-conservation of parity, which basically means that there was an idea in physics that like when something radioactive is decaying, it releases electrons, and they could go left or they could go right. Both are possible. And she and her collaborators proved that, in fact, there is a preference for one direction of spin, and that's called right. non-conservation of parity. Parity, obviously, in that sense, does not have anything to do with gender equity. Uh -huh. but Or satire. Or satire. <laughs> but uh, her two collaborators won the Nobel Prize for that experiment, and she did not. And some people... What? I know, Amanda. Oh, no, I am really, <laughs> I know. really And pissed. some people say because that was because she was the experimental physicist and that there's a slight preference for theoreticians among the, you know, Nobel Prize winners. But that actually is not borne out by data. And to design... This was an incredibly complicated experiment. To design, she used cobalt. And... Uh, and she she certainly deserved it. And if, if she had won, she would have been only the second woman to win the Nobel Prize in physics. I love her. Wow. That's really cool. Um, yeah, so she's one of the people who I loved learning about in the course of this research. So while I was writing, I was really conscious that I wanted there to be real science in the book. I wanted to not just use the science as a way of signaling to the reader, oh, this person knows what she's talking about because um, she made a model of quark-gluon plasma, you know, and we have no idea what quark-gluon plasma is. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to actually explain some of those things in the book. And it's risky because, you know, you sometimes lose people or... You know, mm -hmm. if you don't make it interesting, but I wanted there to be actual science in the book because I really wanted the book to be about work, you know, mm -hmm. as well as friendship. I, mm -hmm. I wanted her work to be real. I wanted it not to be the kind of fictional character job that's like very right. nebulous. You know, I'm I'm freelance, and so that gives me lots of time to you know have lots of adventures during the day that don't have anything to do with work. I wanted it. To, I wanted the work to be uh, to be in the book. But somebody didn't like that and told me that it was like when you get sandwich meat and there's too much fat in the sandwich meat. The science was like the lard in, in your deli meat, and that uh -huh. broke my heart. You know, those things are the things that stay with you. So I hope that people who are not so interested in the science might just skim through and get to the the other parts, and I hope some people will be interested. They will be. I mean, it's interesting. I am interested in science, but I'm always afraid that I'm never going to understand what I'm interested in. And well, and I think that that is a, you know, that well, there's a lot of talk about this, but as the parent of a, you know, a, a girl, mm -hmm. I think about it a lot. And, um, and I think my experience was really typical in that I was a very dutiful, good student, and I did well in math because I did well in every subject. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, a math teacher, a female math teacher, said to me, you know, you didn't do very well in this quiz, and you're so good at languages. I hear from your teachers you're such a good writer, and you're so good at French. 
maybe you should just drop down to the regular track, you know, and that'll be so easy for you because you've already done honors and you can repeat this and then, you know, you can focus on the things you really love. And so I was a junior in high school when that happened and I thought, great, you know, I can take AP studio art. And uh, it was a real, it was a real mistake because by the time I got to college, those things were really completely closed to me. And uh, somebody asked me, you know, did you have any physics background? And I said, the last time I took physics was in ninth grade. It was called physical science. And one of the things they did to try to make it interesting at our girls' school was to do an experiment where we tested the pH levels of our different shampoos. Um, (laughs) I remember herbal essences being a real star. (laughs) Yes. and you, and, you know, it's not just that that was happening in the 80s and 90s. I still see camps for my daughter at all-girls camps that are on the subject of spa science. And it just is not necessary to relate science to cosmetics in order to interest 10-year-old girls. Wait. In fact, most 10-year-old girls are not interested in cosmetics, Hold right? On. But they are interested in space. Spa science? <laughs> spa science. Yeah, that's just from a but couple what is years that? ago. I don't know because I did not sign my child up for that, but... I'm just saying that this problem still exists. exists. And I, as I kind of started doing the research for this project, I remember going to a, um, a meeting at the kids' school about the math program and its goals and the, you know, the method that they use. And I, I went and I was a little bit late and I sat down and they were talking about, you know, one of those logic problems that just gives me like, you know, yeah. palpitations. Uh-huh. Um, and it had to do with an alien civilization and how and their currency. And we were talking about these colored blocks. We had colored blocks out on the table. This was an example of the kind of new math that our kids were doing. And she said, now, can anyone solve for X? And I looked at the board, and there's a guy sitting next to me. And there's no way I would have ever answered, you know, mm-hmm. in front of all these parents who I want to, you know, be friends with. <laughs> and I got the answer in my head. And the guy next to me answered. And, of course, you know, my answer was wrong. I thought, because it was Mm -hmm. different from his. Mm -hmm. But it turned out, in fact, that that, that I was right. And math did not come naturally to me. But I'm also not incapable of doing it just because I uh, like to write and read and write. And there is not such a clear divide. As many of the scientists who I talk to, these amazing people who both write beautiful books and, Mm -hmm. you know, do math. You don't have to. It's not a one or the other kind right. of thing. And so that is something that I hope, you know, is a kind of side effect of the book or yeah. whatever, just because I, I sort of learned that while I was writing it. Nell Freudenberger, author of Lost and Wanted. It's published by Knopf and the paperback is out now. Bookable is a production of Loud Tree Media. I'm your host, Amanda Stern, five feet tall and looking for Metaphase typewriters on eBay. We're produced by me, Bo Friedlander, and Andrew Dunn, who also mixed and sound designed the show. Bo is Loud Tree's editor-in-chief. Find us on the web at bookablepod.com, and please subscribe and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. That's one of the best ways for other listeners to find Bookable. And check the show notes for a link to Nell's favorite physics site. There's a lot to do once you get there. You can look up gravitational wave detection from a binary black hole merger, and you'll see that the whole LIGO scientific collaboration, the LSC, are listed as authors. Don't laugh at me dorking out, Amanda. (laughs) (laughs) The thousands of people. (laughs) It's cute. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thank God you find it cute. <laughs>